I think you may have taken just a too big of a bite there, sir. Maybe. All right. Good morning. If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as the uh, senior pastor here as well as one of the elders, and we are absolutely thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. Um, I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. First off, if Living Hope is your home, uh, whether you're a member or not a member, if you call this place home, then we need you back this evening. We're going to be doing um, a family celebration tonight at 5 o'clock. It'll be in this room. We're going to have a potluck meal, and if you're able to, bring a main dish and either a side or a dessert. Uh, I think dessert would be a fabulous choice, but if you want to bring a side, you can, but dessert would be great. Um, hint, hint. Uh, anyway, so that's tonight. We're going to be doing more than eating. We're going to be also talking about what God's doing in the life of our church family as a whole. We're going to be looking at um, uh, we're going to be looking at the the budget proposed budget for 24, um, not in depth, but just kind of the overarching of that. And we're also going to spend time praying uh, for our church family. There'll be some families in particular that we're going to be praying for with kind of what's been going on in their life over the last few weeks or, or months and. So this morning, I'm excited to say, I'm not really sure where she is in the building, but I did hug her earlier. I saw that Briley Gardner is here this morning. It was, it was two weeks ago that she was loaded on a helicopter to be life-flighted to Temple. And praise God, he is bringing healing to her body, and she is here worshiping with us. If you know Briley and see her in the hallway, please, in all sincerity, be careful as you approach her. Don't like bump into her. Don't do anything like that. Her head is still healing, um, but we are grateful uh, that God has brought the healing in her life that he has. And that reminds me that we need to be praying for someone, which we literally will do here in just a second. We need to be praying for Michael Carter. Uh, you see, just about three days later, he also uh, thought it'd be a good idea to jump on a helicopter and go to Temple, and uh, he is there, and he's having a procedure done to remove um, a tumor or a growth on his pituitary gland, and the surgery is tomorrow at noon-ish, and uh, they are grateful for how the church family has been praying for them. We need to continue to pray for them, uh, as that's a very delicate procedure to go in and remove that tomorrow um, at afternoon. So be praying for the doctors and nurses as they care for him. And I would like for us right now to take a moment to pray for Michael, Alicia, and their kids, uh, that God's healing hand would be upon him and that God would restore him to full health. Let's pray together. God, we come to you now thanking you and praising you because your steadfast love does endure forever. God, we've seen evidence of that in our lives in so many ways, and even today as Briley is here worshiping with our church family, that God, that's a reminder of the miracle that you've done in her life to bring her the healing that she's experienced. Thus far, we pray for continued healing in her body. God, we're reminded to pray for Michael right now. Uh, they may even be worshiping with us online right now, and God, I pray that if they are or they aren't, either way, that they would sense that your people are praying for him today. God, I pray that you'd bring healing and wholeness to his body. God, I pray that even right now you would be shrinking whatever it is on his pituitary gland, that they could get that in the easiest, smoothest fashion. God, I pray that they'd be able to contain all that they remove and that nothing would be left behind. God, we pray that they would get good news from uh, the, the pathology that's done on that so that they can have uh, peace of mind there. God, I pray that you would steady the hands of the surgeons and those that will be working with him. God, I pray 
pray that they would just take their time and, and that they would do the work that they need to do. That God, that we understand that medicine and science and technology um, is a good thing, but healing ultimately comes from you, whether you use that or another method. And so God, we pray that your healing hand would be upon Michael Carter. God, I pray that you'd bring comfort and peace and grace as he gets ready for that procedure in just 24 hours. God, I'm grateful for the text that he sent me that said that he was resting in your, your grace and your comfort and your peace. And God, we pray that that would just resound in his life this morning. God, we pray that tomorrow would be good news and that things would go smoothly. We pray for his healing after this fact. God, we pray for his kids. We pray for Alicia as she waits during the surgery. God, your a miracle working God and we trust you and God even as I pray for the gardeners and the carters we know there are others in our church family others that are in this room right now that are going through things and we pray for our church family as a whole and we look forward tonight to be able to come to pray for each other again and to focus on what you're doing in our lives we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning to worship you to study your word and I pray that you would help us to hear from you today and that we would respond accordingly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As you came in this morning, you probably picked up a worship guide. If you've been with us for a couple of years, uh, you know that for the most part, uh, we have been walking through the book of Acts. And you're like, oh, that doesn't have the graphic we had when we were walking through the book of Acts. We have put uh, a pause on the book of Acts. In January, we'll come back and we'll finish that in about two or three weeks in January. We'll start a new series on the prophet Micah from the Old Testament. But in between, we are doing a series, and you see on the front of this, it's called The Coming uh, King. It's on the screen as well, The Coming King. And let me just kind of explain to you where we're going. As I said earlier, it's hard to believe that it's Thanksgiving week. It's hard to believe that Christmas is literally around the corner. Um, and we know that as we get ready for the holidays, we need to prepare our hearts and our minds and our spirits for that. And so the church through the ages is referred to that as Advent. And Advent is a focus on the coming Messiah that would come. And we see him born in Bethlehem and the work uh, through his life and ministry. But it's also looking towards the coming king that will come one day to bring us to himself. And so this morning, we're starting this series. And as we walk through this series over the next few weeks through the end of this calendar year, we're going to be studying throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. This morning we start in Genesis. How, how Jesus is the coming king and how we benefit as a result of that. In our sermons, in our hope group discussions, in children's worship and infusion, we're going to be looking at this series. And one other thing you probably saw on the front of your worship guide, there is a QR code as well as information on how to access it if you don't want to use a QR code. And that is you can get an Advent guide throughout the few, next few weeks. There will be two devotionals every week and it will show up at the Hope. So you just go on our website or use this QR code. Go to the Hope, click on that, click on the Advent Guide, and it'll be digital. If you need a printed copy, contact the church office. We can figure out how to make that happen for you. But we want to encourage you that through worship attendance, through, through uh, Hope groups, through the devotional, that we will walk through this together to see the coming King. And the first two days are already uploaded on the devotional guide. All right. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that there is a King that is promised. We see that there is a king that is anticipated, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who would come. And we see that ultimately this king is King Jesus. 
as a loose <clears throat> frame of reference, we're going to be using the genealogy that's found of Jesus in Matthew. Matthew chapter, chapter 1, I almost said 21, I don't know why. Matthew 1 is uh, the genealogy of Jesus. And this morning, I want to just read the verse 1, the first verse. Here's what Matthew 1, 1 says. <clears throat> it says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want to focus on this, the son of David. David, if you don't already know this, is a great king in Israel's history. Uh, he was the king of Israel and the greatest king, you could say, that ever ruled there in Israel. And as great as King David was, he is simply a type pointing to the coming king, and that true coming king is Jesus. And so about 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ came to earth and was born in Bethlehem, we see that at that first Christmas, the long-awaited king came to the earth in order to bring salvation. And then throughout the New Testament, we see over and over again that Jesus is coming again, and since he is coming again, he is the coming king who will come one day, return, and bring his people to himself. So this morning, I want to start this journey by looking to the book of Genesis. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Genesis 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a hardbound Bible uh, underneath your chair or the chair in front of you or somewhere around. You can use that Bible. If you don't have a Bible or you need one or know somebody who does, you can feel free to take that with you. That'll be our gift to you. So in Genesis, <clears throat> we see that God created mankind man and woman adam and eve he created them in his image and then once he created them in his image it says that he placed them in a perfect garden to be with him and i said genesis 3 which is what we're going to look at but first i want us to look at two verses in genesis 2 because while god placed them in the garden and gave them free reign of almost everything in the garden he did give them one command and we see that command in genesis chapter 2 Verses 16 and 17. Here's what God says. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God said, you can eat of anything. Just don't eat of this one tree. This tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you do eat of that, you will die. We had Howard uh, talk with his mouth full as he was eating that apple to reference that time when the people of God, Adam and Eve, disregarded the command that they had, been receiving, had received and ate of that fruit. And so I want to read the account that's found in chapter 3. So in Genesis 3... We pick up the story of Adam and Eve and their temptation to eat of the fruit that they're forbidden to eat. Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, which is not what God said, lest you die. He said don't eat it, but he didn't say don't touch it. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig tree, sorry, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. On the back of your worship guide, you can feel free to take notes as we move through this morning. But what we see here in Genesis 3 is that God set the standard for his people, and they were to not eat of this particular tree. And yet we see the serpent, Satan, come and tempt them to do otherwise. And what happens is that Satan... He, he causes them, he deceives them, and causes them to begin to question a lot of things. Uh, Satan questioned God. Satan questioned God's word. Satan questioned God's motives, and he caused Adam and Eve to have the same response. And when Eve saw the fruit, she saw that it was good, and she desired to eat it, and she disregarded the will of God and chose her will. Because it looked good. It, it seemed right to her. And so it didn't really matter in that moment what God had said. It was all about what she wanted. And she wanted to eat of the fruit. So she took the fruit and began to eat it. Before we're real quick to say Eve was an idiot, the reality is all of us have been put in similar situations day after day, and we're given the will of God, and we kind of thumb our nose at God and says, God, that, that seems good to you, but this seems good to me, and I'm going to do it my way. And there's an interesting aspect to the story, because if we're not careful, we go, Eve was the one who took the fruit and she's horrible and she sinned it wasn't adam that took the fruit but the reality is this they both sinned because adam where was he he was right alongside of her the whole time and instead of adam intervening and stepping in and saying no we can't do this don't you know what god told us he sat back passively men all too often we sit back passively and don't lead like we should and adam in that scenario fell prey to that. So both Adam and Eve sinned against God going their own way instead of God's way. And what's interesting here, or, or not interesting, it's not interesting, it's the, just the truth is that at the moment <clears throat> that sin entered into the world, God's perfect creation was completely destroyed and altered and changed forever. Adam and Eve I'm not going to read all the verses. You could keep reading past verse 7, but if you kept reading, you'd see that Adam and Eve felt shame for their sin. They felt guilt for their sin. They felt fear from God, and they hid from God and began to cover themselves, right? We've read about that. And then it's really interesting, and the kids kind of picked up on it earlier, and that is the blame game starts immediately. Do you remember what happens when God says, when he shows up and he knows that they've ate, eaten the fruit and they're asking questions of Adam and Eve and God knows the answers but he's seeing what they're going to say and Adam says, it's the woman that you gave me, God, that did this. In other words, he starts by blaming the woman. She did it. And then he reminds God, the only reason the woman's here to do this is because you gave her to me and so God, it's her fault and it's your fault. And then Eve says, oh, well, hold up. It was the serpent. The serpent deceived me. But the reality is, 
both Adam and Eve, sinned against God, and the consequence of their sin was exactly what God said would take place, and that is that they would die. And you're like, wait wait a minute, Alan, they didn't die that day. Well, no, they didn't die physically that day, but the process of their physical death began, and more importantly, their spiritual death happened right at that moment. Because they chose to go contrary to God instead of his way. And at that moment, as we will see, they were separated from God. In fact, if you go to the end of chapter 3, you see that sadly, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden at the end of chapter 3. And they are exiled from the garden. You're like, what's the big deal with that? Here's what the big deal is. Adam and Eve had been in close communion or relationship or fellowship or relationship with God. And in fact, they, we get the impression based on when God approached them for their sin that on a daily basis, on a consistent basis, they would walk with the Lord and spend time with him. But because of their sin, they hid from God and God removed them from his presence. And the intimacy and fellowship that they had with him was then broken. You're like, okay. So far, the news is not all that good. We're three chapters into the Bible. The whole world has gone the wrong direction. And Adam and Eve have been exiled from God's presence. What do we do from here? We're going to look at verse 15. Genesis 3.15, if we're not careful, we will miss the power of this verse. And we'll overlook the fact that this charts the course for all of Scripture as we walk through it. So here's what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Before I read the passage, let me kind of explain. Right after the blame game happened, God then began to make some pronouncements. And the first thing he did was he turns to the serpent and he makes a pronouncement to the serpent. And Genesis 3, 15 says this, God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's interesting in this passage is that before God announces the punishments to Adam and Eve, which if you want to read those, you can keep following after verse 15 and see them. Before God exiles them out of the garden the first thing that he does is he pronounces on the serpent satan these verses that i just read and you could be saying well what could these words mean like what is meant by this it seems a little bit vague and uncertain and what does he mean by his offspring and her offspring and crushing the head and the 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 heel what's all of this about the reality is that when adam and eve heard these words there's no way that they could fully understand and comprehend the depth of these words because they were living in their time frame and had not seen everything else that was to come. You and I, we have the advantage of looking backwards at history and we can begin to unpack and understand what these words mean, whereas Adam and Eve did not have that opportunity to do so. But there was something about these words that they knew that God was emphasizing something. And the other thing I want us to see is this. These words were spoken not to Adam and Eve, although they would have heard them, They are spoken to the serpent. And what we see is that God's plan all along is for his glory and his making things right and not 
what is the advantage to us as humans. And what I mean by that is as you look at the blessings in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you think about your salvation and how God has provided for you, what he is doing is not about you, it's about his glory. And then along the way, as he receives glory, we receive benefit as well. And so in this scenario, the serpent receives this punishment from God. And and what we see is this. As Adam and Eve walked away from the garden, they must have had these words reverberate in their ears where it says that there is an offspring that's coming and this offspring, it says at the end of verse 5, will bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And I can't help but think that as they walked away, they began to wonder which offspring, which child of ours is going to come and defeat the serpent? And when will this happen? How will it take place? Can you imagine the anticipation with every child, especially every son that is born, because it says he will do this. And I know that we get excited whenever we have children, but all the more they must have been anticipating is could this be the promised one? This was the lowest of all points, and yet hope is promised by the God who had a plan. So I want us to see what God's plan is. The first thing you see on your notes there is this, that the king is coming. The king is coming. When, when God proclaims to the, the, the serpent that one of Eve's offspring will come and crush his head, he's saying the king is coming. You're like, there's no word king there. I get that. But the idea is that as we walk through scripture, we see that Jesus is the promised one that is coming. He is the offspring that would come and crush Satan's head. And he is the king of kings. And so we see that a king is coming in the precise moment when Adam and Eve could have easily abandoned all hope. God made a promise. And the first part of the promise doesn't seem very promising. Look at the first part in the beginning of verse 15. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The reality is God says there's going to be an ongoing battle with the serpent between Eve's offspring and him. You and I know what this is all about. We know about the battle that rages on between God and evil forces. We know about the temptations that we face. We know the evil that's in the world. We look and see what's going on in in Israel and and the Gaza Strip. And we see terrorists and we see evil and and hatred and, and all of this. We see things in our own life and we know that there is an ongoing struggle between God and the forces of evil. And that's what's promised in that first section of the verse. I want us to focus on the second part of the verse. The second part of that promise is that that one of her offspring would come and he would bruise the head of serpent and the serpent would bruise the heel of the offspring. Her offspring would be the one who would deliver a fatal blow to the serpent. An offspring is promised, the one who would crush bring this crushing blow is Jesus. You're like, how could it be Jesus? Like Eve did not give birth to Jesus. The word offspring or seed means through her lineage. And so through her lineage, the promised king, Jesus, would come. And this Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. You you may want to write this down, and I should have put it on the screen, but I didn't. The word is proto-evangelium. That's spelled P-R-O-T-O, proto, 
the word proto means first, like a prototype, right? So proto, P-R-O-T-O, evangelium, it's almost like the word evangelist, E-V-A-N-G-E-L-I-U-M. So it's one word, proto-evangelium, it's P-R-O-T-O, E-V-A-N-G-E-L-I-U-M. Those are two words, first gospel. So right here we are in the third chapter of the Bible, right after sin comes into the world, and we see the gospel beginning to be proclaimed. God says, I will have the victory. I will have the victory because I'm sending my son. I'm sending my son. My, uh, my son Jesus will come and crush the head of the serpent, and he will receive all glory. So we see from the very beginning that the gospel is God's answer. And, and I liked what Howard alluded to earlier. The gospel is the one plan that God has had for all ages. It's not like Adam and Eve sinned and then God goes, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? No, he knew before the foundations of the world that he would send his son Jesus because he knew that the people would sin and we would need a savior. And so now he proclaims his plan, even though Adam and Eve did not walk away going, oh, Jesus will be born and he will die on a cross for our sins. No, all they knew is that somehow, some way, God would bring victory by sending an offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. And his name is Jesus. You're like, what is that all about? Think about it for a moment. When Jesus came and was crucified on the cross, didn't Satan think he had the victory? Didn't he think that he had won the battle? But the reality is, no, that was a part of God's plan, that God would send his son to die on the cross for our sins, and that on the third day he would raise again, and then at that point he would bring victory over sin, death, Satan, and the grave, right? And so whenever Jesus was put on the cross, that is a sense of the snake, the serpent striking his heel, bringing pain and affliction to Jesus, but ultimately Jesus gets the victory as he comes out of the grave and stomps on the head of serpent. So we see that Jesus is a fulfillment of Genesis 3:15. At the cross, Satan seemed to win, but at the empty grave, Jesus wins the victory. So Genesis 3:15 gives us God's promise that the king is coming. I've got a couple of questions to ask you based on the fact that the king is coming in this verse, Genesis 3.15. And here are my questions. What difference does it make to you that Jesus is promised this early in the Bible? In other words, to know that Jesus is promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, granted his name is not said, but he is promised in Genesis 3.15, how does that bring you hope and confidence? How does that remind you that God has you as you journey through this life? The second question that goes along with that is, how does that impact your understanding or view of God's salvation plans? It was his plan all along. God knew that our sin would eternally, forever separate us from him. Just as Adam and Eve were escorted out of the garden and exiled out of the garden, you and I are exiled away from a holy, perfect God because God can have nothing to do with our sin. But praise God, from the beginning, he had a plan, and that plan was Jesus Christ. The king was coming, and the king would crush the head of the serpent. And so throughout all of the Old Testament, 
over and over again, prophecies would be made that the king is coming. And we see it starts right here in Genesis 3.15. The second thing I want us to see in this verse is that the king is conquering. Not only is he coming, but God says that the king is conquering. We've already talked about that, right? When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And yet Satan thought he won. And then on the third day when Jesus was resurrected out of the grave, we see that Jesus stomped on, crushed on, struck a fatal blow to Satan as he was resurrected. And so the question may be, well, Alan, why do you say the king is conquering? Why don't you say the king has conquered? And the reason I chose to phrase it this way is because the battle rages on. Do you remember the beginning of Genesis 3.15? He says that there will be enmity between you and the serpent. There will be enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the serpent. What is that all about? Is that saying that we as humans will always be scared of a snake because we don't want to be bit by a snake? No, that's not what that's saying, although that may be true. What it's saying is this, that there is a long, perpetual struggle between good and evil. The offspring or the seed of the woman in this scenario would be those of us that are on God's side, living for God, following him. Those that are the seed of the serpent are those who resist God. And so what he's saying is this, those who seek to follow God, those who resist God, will be in a constant cosmic battle against good and evil, against God and Satan. And he promises that that battle is ongoing. But praise God, we know that in the midst of that raging battle, Jesus is still conquering king. And because of that, he is in the process of bringing that conquered feeling to us. I want us to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Because as it talks about, in Genesis 3.15, about the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of, of, of Eve, it reminds me of this text. Here's what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, if I can get to it. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed, there's that offspring or seed, abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident we, sorry, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He says you can see who is a child of Satan. You can see who is a child of God. And the reality is this, we must be careful to understand that God is conquering and we should be living out uh, his, his, his commands. I've got kind of a preliminary application question. Uh, uh, sometimes people give me grief about how many times I ask questions. So I'm going to ask it here, all right? Do your actions, based on what we read in 1 John 3, do your actions show you to be a child of God or a child of the devil? Do your actions show that you're a child of God or a child of the devil? Now, our actions do not bring salvation, but rather because of our salvation and trust in Jesus Christ, our actions should flow out of that and therefore we should be obedient to the calls of God. And the reality is this, as we look at our fruit, does our fruit demonstrate that we are a child of God or a child of the devil? The good news is this. The good news is this, because our coming king is 
a conquering king, you and I are conquering individuals as well. I want us to look at a couple passages out of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says this. It says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As we walk through this life and we're faced with temptations and sin, as we're called upon to either obey God or follow our own way, the way that you and I can conquer Satan is through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and because of him and because of his work in our lives, because of Christ, you and I are more than conquerors. And then I want us to see that Paul carries out this idea of Genesis 3.15. And he says that, that Jesus is stomping on the head of Satan and that we are called to celebrate that victory. Look at the end of Romans. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, here's what Paul says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. It says in Genesis 3.15 that Satan would be crushed by the feet of the offspring of Eve. And we know that ultimately that's Jesus Christ. And he is the one that does the crushing. He is the one that does the conquering. But because of his work in us and through us, we are called to conquer Satan. Not because of us, but because of him. And what he says is that it says in verse 20 there, your feet... Satan will be crushed under because of what God is doing in and through you. So from our vantage point, when we hear that the king is conquering, it can be hard for us to see or believe that Jesus is conquering. And what I mean by that is we're like, we still live in a broken world. We see, still see the mess of sin and we see the results of sin. We can see our own lives that every single day, we're not necessarily living for God like we should. We're not killing it every single day like we should. We still struggle with temptation and sin. But none of this changes the fact that Jesus is the conquering king and the reality that the king is conquering. And because he is, he wants to conquer sin in our lives and live this conquering victory through our lives as well. I want us to ask three questions of ourselves based on this section. The first one is this, how do you handle it when you see, sorry, how do you handle it when it's hard to see that Jesus is conquering over evil in the world? In other words, you see the brokenness of the world, you see the evil of the world, you see the sinfulness of the world, you see the injustice of the world. How does that strike you? How does that impact you? And how do you handle that? In what ways are you struggling with becoming like Christ? I said that we're called to live in victory over Satan, which means we're to be obedient to the call of God, and yet we struggle. It's an ongoing battle. And so the question is, in what ways are you currently struggling with becoming like Christ? And then the last one, are you taking an active role in crushing the head of Satan? Guys, the reality is this. The King Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem. The King Jesus died on the cross and was raised on the third day bringing victory. And because of that, he is the conquering king. And yet the reality is this, while the defeat of Satan has already happened, there's an aspect of but not yet. And the only way we experience the fullness of God's victory is, is when Christ returns again. Which brings us to the last point, and that is the King is coming again. As I said earlier, Advent's all about waiting on the coming Christ. And the reality is that you and I are waiting for Christ to come again. And it's in Christ's coming again that we will see his victory over sin. 
It's in his return that we'll see the ultimate victory over sin in our lives as we enter into the presence of God and sin is removed and is no more. At that time, the presence of sin will be removed and we will enter into his presence. The truth of the matter is this, that knowing that Jesus is coming again should bring you and I great hope and joy. It's interesting in our Christian belief class today. It seems like our classes and uh, our class and our, our, our sermon content kind of sometimes piggyback off of each other. We were looking at the doctrine of eschatology or the last things and we were reminded in that class this morning that the truth is that Jesus is coming back and because he's coming back that brings us comfort and peace and hope and joy. There's hope and joy that because when Jesus comes back, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you will be in his presence. Knowing that he's coming back again should bring us not only peace and joy, but it also should cause us to live an obedient lifestyle. Think about all the parables that Jesus told. And many of the parables Jesus told, he told about how there would be a a king coming back, which is a reference to himself. And in each of those parables, he talks about how his return would come and the statement would be that he would pray that they would be found obeying him. The truth of the matter is that Jesus is returning, and because he is, that should impact how we live our lives, that we should live lives of obedience. Additionally, because he's coming back again, it should cause us to live missionally, where we're going out and telling others the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. We have a limited amount of time to go out and preach the gospel. Are we doing that? Knowing that he will return should spur us on to tell others about the coming king. I want to ask us a couple of questions on this one. Is how you live your daily life impacted by the truth that the king is coming again? It should be, but is it? I want you to think about your life, the way you live your life, even if you're not sitting there every day going, oh, the king's coming back, so that should impact how I live my life. I'm just saying the reality of his coming again, does that impact your life? It should impact your life in obedience and also in telling others about Jesus. And if that's not impacting your life, if that's not being lived out, the second question is, well, what changes is God calling you to make today? You wouldn't think that the gospel story would enter into the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, but it does. Because you see, the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is consistent. It's one story. Yes, there are 66 books. Yes, there are 40-something authors. Yes, it was written over a period of thousands of years. Yes, there's different genres or styles of literature. Yes, there are different intricate details in there. But there's one story. The story of scripture is this. God made us to be in relationship with him But sin enters into our world. We choose our way instead of God's. We are separated from a holy, perfect God. But praise God, he had an answer, and that answer is Jesus. And we see that answer beginning to be unveiled in Genesis chapter 3, 15. should bring us confidence and hope that God had a plan, he carried it out, and Jesus brings salvation. I want to read... Genesis 3.15, one more time. It says here that while he'll put enmity between the woman and the serpent, and between her offspring and the serpent's offspring, it says that his offspring, he, Jesus Christ, shall bruise or crush 
or destroy or trample upon Satan's head and Satan will bruise his heel. Thank God Jesus is not in the grave any longer. Genesis 3.15 should bring us great hope in the midst of a difficult life that we're facing. God promises us that victory is found in him even when we struggle against sin. He reminds us that as soon as sin entered into the world, the gospel was preached. Jesus is the coming king who is promised. Jesus is the coming king who's coming again. And that brings us great hope. This morning, as we get ready to close our service together, we'll sing a couple of songs. And as we sing those songs, it'll be an opportunity for us to respond. During the second song, some offering plates will be passed. And if you've come with an offering, you can drop that in there. If you've found a connection card to fill out if you're a guest or if you have a prayer request or want some kind of information from the church, you can drop that in the offering plate as well. But during these two songs, we'll sing and and respond as God leads us. And you could respond a few different ways. You could respond there at your chair. You could respond by filling out the connection card. You could, you could come and pray at the altar. You could bring a friend to pray with you. You could um, text someone if you need to in respond to the, the response to the message. You could come and pray with me. But most importantly, let us say yes to God. And if there's never been a time in your life where you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, Know that Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is the only hope. And he is a conquering king who's coming again. So let's go out and tell the world. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, we, um, we thank you that in your word consistently over and over and over again, you tell the same story. You tell the story that we need to be rescued. You, you, we need to be saved. We need to be delivered. And God, we are so thankful that from the very beginning we see that the answer is Jesus and that Jesus is promised from the earliest pages in Scripture. Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we respond this morning. If there be someone this morning that has not trusted in Jesus for their salvation may today be the day of salvation God may we understand that there's no victory in and of ourselves that we can't crush Satan's head on our own but that the only way that his head is trampled under our feet is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives once we have placed our faith and our trust in you and so God I pray that our lives would be impacted by the truths that we see in your word that we would go out and live an obedient life, that we would go out and tell others about the hope that's found in Jesus, and that, God, we would walk out of here victorious, that we wouldn't walk out defeated thinking that Satan has our number and we just have to give in to sin, but that rather we serve a conquering king and that you are alive and well in our lives and that we can trust in the Holy Spirit's work in our life, that we are going to be responsive to him in order that we might experience the victory over sin that you want to bring in the here and the now. Help us not to walk in confidence of ourselves or boldness of ourselves, but in confidence and boldness of Jesus Christ, the one who brings victory. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's respond as the Lord leads us. I'll be available here to pray with you at the front if you'd like to come and do that.
Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more. One love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their son. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. One patience will weigh as we constantly remain. One Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. me very well you may know what that means that means I want to give you a little bit of a second helping 
Sometimes you get a second helping because the first helping was so good. And other times it's because maybe you left something out of the first helping. And so you be the judge of that. Um, as I was reflecting on the fact that Jesus is a conquering king, and whether we're living in that truth or whether we're living in defeat, it caused me to think back to Romans chapter 7 and 8. If you've got your Bible handy, I know the words won't be on the screen, but if you've got your Bible handy, I'd encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 7 and 8. In 7, Paul is talking about this predicament he is in where he is battling against um, following the law of God or following sin. And you could almost end that chapter and think that there's no hope. Like, we're going to just sin. Like, Paul is a phenomenal apostle of Jesus, and if he struggles here, then I have no hope myself. And I'm going to walk in defeat. But guys, we cannot, as followers of Jesus, walk in defeat. We must walk in victory, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. And so this morning, as we read that text of Genesis 3:15, we're told that we will be conquerors, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. And I was reflecting on the end of chapter 7 in Romans. And so Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 7, verse 20, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Here's what Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, I, I want to follow the law of God, but in verse 23, I see in my members of my body another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise God, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have victory in Jesus. And as I'm singing and reflecting on what God's doing in our lives, I can't help but ask this question. If you're a follower of Jesus, are you walking in defeat or are you walking in victory? Some of us are walking as if the cross and the grave didn't happen and it's just a moralistic feel-good story and I hope that it builds me up today when I'm at church. The truth of the matter is there is a war waging in and among us and that is the war against good and evil, against God and the powers and the principalities of Satan and the truth of the matter is if we don't walk in the victory of Christ, we will live as if we're defeated and that is sad. Some of us came into this room and we're going to walk out of this room thinking our marriage is over. We walked in this room and we're going to walk out this room as if our finances have fallen apart. We walked in this room thinking that relationship has been destroyed and there's no coming back. And we're walking out thinking the same thing. We walked in in defeat and we're walking back out in defeat. I'm not talking about name it, claim it. I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm saying, are we living in the power and the truth of Jesus Christ? If you're a follower of Jesus, even if life doesn't go your way, you have victory over Satan. He has no power, no dominion over you. Stop giving him the right to your life. But guys, in order for us to have victory in our life, it takes, and hear my words carefully, work on our part. 
It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, but he's asking us to take an active role in that, putting ourselves in a place where we can receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Reading God's Word, studying God's Word, meditating on God's Word, memorizing God's Word, being in an accountable relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing the Word of God, living it out, doing the right thing, saying I'm sorry when I sin, and seek to follow Jesus. I look at your faces, I look at my face, and at times we walk as if we are walking in defeat. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is no defeat, there is victory in Jesus Christ, even as we fight this battle. But praise God, the king is coming back, and when he comes back, there will only be victory. There will be no more sadness, no more tears, no more grief, no more sin, and God will have the victory. So I don't know whether you need to hear that or not. But I know that we have to walk out in victory. Stop living a defeated Christian life. There is no such thing. If you're walking in defeat, if you're constantly walking in defeat, check your salvation. Because with the conquering king as Lord of your life, you cannot walk in constant defeat. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to like do anything like that. I'm just saying, check your heart. We walk in victory because of who Christ is. All right, on that note, would you stand with us? I'm going to pray to dismiss us. I'm going to encourage you, be back tonight at 5 o'clock. Alan's not preaching tonight. We're just spending time with church family, and we're praying together. Don't miss it tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll be together about an hour and a half or so probably. There will be no child care. We'll all be in this room. Come be a part of that at 5 o'clock. And let's walk out in a victorious Christian life. And the way we do that is by being a disciple, making disciples, being the church of the glory of God. Take a moment to greet somebody around you, maybe somebody you don't know very well. Let's do this life together. Let's pray.